It's been a mixed year for the health and fitness industry. On the one hand, gyms, clubs, pools and sports facilities of all types have had prolonged periods of closure. But on the other, you only need to go down to your local park at the weekend to witness the crowds of walkers, runners and cyclists. This week, we'll be discussing whether our fitness habits have changed for good and how the pandemic has impacted businesses. To help us, we'll be speaking to two of the biggest UK fitness brands, gym chain Pure Gym and clothing label Gymshark. And from today, we're also going to be taking the time to answer some of the investment questions you sent in. So stick around until the end for that. From the Investors Chronicle, I'm Megan Boxall. And I'm John Human, and this is Not Your Normal Financial. So our, uh, our question to get us going this week, as, as set by producer John, is, uh, is a funny one. It's, it's asking us about how we've been staying in shape over lockdown. John, has coronavirus been good or bad for your health? Uh, yeah i mean you know the answer to that question well it was it was initially very good i um i i'd got into running i'd actually taken up park run uh my times were coming down i spent the first few months of lockdown getting this mag out and then going out for uh for, for a little bit of exercise in the evening it was all it was all going rather well and then i got so i had to go and it came to an abrupt shuddering halt so uh not great is the answer what about you megan <laughs> um i uh yeah i've had i mean i do quite a lot of exercise anyway so from and for me the gyms being closed has been that's that and the pubs have been the biggest issue with the last year for me but yeah we have got into i have got into quite a good routine now of 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 running more regularly and also we've bought a lot of exercise equipment for our home and the spare bedroom is now a gym because no one can come and stay so we may as well use the spare bedroom for plenty of gym equipment well that's that's very good that's very admirable i have actually bought a bike recently as well uh which you would have read about in the investors chronicle uh last week if you'd read my editorial um yeah i've, I've taken up mountain biking which i think is, is utter madness uh i've already injured myself quite badly once Oh, go on, tell the story. No. <laughs> I know you're bored with it. I fell off my bike trying a jump that I really shouldn't have. And uh, it was never diagnosed, but I think I may have broken a rib and a wrist. Just one rib? I thought it was several ribs. Oh, every bone in my body was smashed to pieces. <laughs> but yeah, cycling has certainly been one of the things that people have been taking up. Taking up one of the few things that we're allowed to do at the moment. And I mean, we've seen from... From Halford's results last week, what was a trading update actually last week? It, they they've done warring trade in the last year as everyone's been buying bikes and not just bikes. I mean, we bought a um, a turbo trainer to put our bikes on. And it's winter time, and I have a road bike, so it's not particularly nice going out um, in the mud and in the cold and in the dark. But putting my bike on the turbo trainer, and we've downloaded an app called Zwift. Um, and it's amazing. I I cycle in Central Park most days. I uh, did a little bit of cycling around Paris yesterday. It was it's lovely, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's an amazing app, and it's certainly been in high demand. Um, I mean, the amount of people who use Zwift, you can see all the users who are on it at the same time as you. It's huge numbers. Yeah, it's it's incredible. I, I mean, the, the technology behind fitness now is uh, is, uh, has, has hit an amazing level, um, which is kind of. Hardly surprising, given given what what the tech industry as a whole is is doing. Um, it's, it's, it was only a matter of time before those worlds collided. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, what's cycling without the mud, eh? 
Um, in my opinion, it's slightly better, but <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, it's difficult to recreate something like mountain biking with your Peloton or with your Zwift app. But if it is about the fitness, and if for the kind of people who were going to spin classes at their gym at their local gym or or any kind of personal training that they were having at their local gym, they don't need that anymore because it's a lot cheaper to to get a Zwift or a Peloton subscription. I, I think Peloton's quite expensive once you roll in the bike as well. But we paid 200 quid for the turbo trainer and now I'm paying £12 a month. That is significantly cheaper than most gyms. And it's in my home so I can get on the bike whenever I like. And it is better than if I had gone to the was going to the gym to sit on an exercise bike I mean I go to the gym for slightly more than that but if you were going just for the just to be able to use cycling equipment or even running equipment people have replaced the gym with on online and in-home equipment and will they go back to the gyms when when they can finally reopen I mean apart from the real fanatics maybe not I, th- I think there is a social element to the gym as well I mean you know maybe not if you're going there to uh, to kind of you know, do your, your solo intense workout. But, but you know, people who go to classes do go for the social side of things. But there's a so. social side to Peloton and Zwift as well. You give each other thumbs up and pat on the back. And, I mean, it's obviously not the same. It's not the same. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but there is there is a social element to, to that. And, yeah, will people be willing to, to fork out 30 quid a month or, I mean, up to 150 quid a month? I mean, I, I had actually... I mean, actually, I was a member of Pure Gym, who we're going to hear from in a minute for a bit. Um, I stopped being a member of Pure Gym um, because the introductory offer ended, which is which is how a lot of gyms were getting people to sign up in the past. But but also because it didn't have a pool. It's, it's quite a, quite mm. an interesting business model, that one. Use smaller sites. We're going to hear about that in a minute. Um, so I joined the local, essentially the, what, what was the former local authority gym, uh, which uh, has been taken over by a private company, uh, as many of these things are, because it had a pool. Mm. Uh, and, I, and I miss that. Yeah. That was, that was something I was actually enjoying and it was really good for fitness. So, so I think people will go back for, for that kind of thing. Mm. It's been difficult for them though, because if you think about, I mean, we talk a lot about the retailers in Christmas and this is the time of year where the gyms make a lot of their money because people, new year, new me, it's January and all that. People are looking to get fit and healthy. Mm. And right now they're getting fit and healthy at home. So this big surge that they normally get in January, the the 10 million people who were signed up to a gym in 2019, they haven't done that this year. So unless you really have a good reason to go back, maybe they won't when... Uh, when they've been, people have managed for so long. Mm, I, guess, I guess it's one of those those things we we won't know until no. until the restrictions start to lift. But you know, I think I I personally think a lot of people will want to be going back to the things they used to enjoy. And you know, I'm, I'm not one of them. The gym is not not something that I am a huge fan of. I, I did it because I felt I had to. But you enjoy it. I do. You want to get back there? I do. I, I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> But as long as it can be followed up with a with a pint in the pub. So Pure Gym with 260 locations and over a million members is the largest gym chain in the UK. And we have spoken to its chief executive, Humphrey Cobold. Here's our conversation with him. My name's Humphrey Cobold. I'm the chief executive of Pure Gym, which is the UK's largest gym operator and the second largest operator of gym and fitness facilities in Europe. 
Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, you obviously Pure Gym is phenomenally successful. I wondered if you could just maybe give us a brief history lesson of how how they've how they've got there, how you've got there. Sure. Look, yeah, briefly, Pure Gym was founded by um, an entrepreneur in two thousand and nine who thought there was an opportunity to bring you know affordable fitness um, to the UK market. You know, our base model is that we charge twenty pounds a month. Um, and don't enforce people to sign up to a contract. So it's very flexible, uh, £20 a month on average. We vary prices in different uh, markets. Uh, that turned out to be uh, really successful, uh, and Peter grew the business through 2014 and 15. Um, I joined the business in 2015 when we had about 85 sites um, open. We continued to grow and invest in the UK, and we now have 275 uh, sites in the UK, mostly through having opened one site at a time. We have bought a couple of businesses along the way, such as the old LA fitness business, which we bought and converted to our own gyms. And then towards the end of 2019, uh, we acquired a business called Fitness World, which is based principally in Denmark and Switzerland, uh, which added about another 210, 220 or so sites um, to the portfolio. So we currently have just around uh, 500 sites um, in total um, in the business um, spread across those three main uh, geographies, the UK, um, Denmark and Switzerland. Let's talk about 2020, uh, if we may. It, it was a, it's a tough year for for everyone. Um, gyms were open then shut, um, on and off. Yeah. Um, how difficult was that to manage uh, for you? Well, clearly, um, you know, when you're told one day that you've got to close down um, your business um, and put it into hibernation, that's a tough thing to do because we don't normally practice. Uh, that sort of thing. Yes, yeah, so it's a business we'd taken 10 years to build and we had about 10 hours to close it down. And that's a challenge for any management team. Of course, the focus moves very swiftly um, when you've got no revenue coming in to minimizing the cash burn and managing liquidity and cash um, and uh, minimizing the amount of money that's going out of the business. And we moved very swiftly to that level. The team did an excellent job such that we minimized the cash burn um, through the initial lockdown period, which was roughly speaking from mid-March until variously um, our first business in Switzerland opened in May, Denmark opened in June, and then the bulk of our sites um, in the UK were open uh, by the end of July. Though actually the Scottish sites weren't open again to the end of August. Um, and we had to manage ourselves very carefully through that time period, minimise the amount of cash going out, use our resources very carefully and preserve as much cash and capital as we could, which is what we really focused our time and attention on. Was it also an opportunity to maybe explore new trends? I feel like there's been a real appetite for exercise despite facilities being closed. Um, so is there, is there anything new you've, you've tried out over the period? Oh, no, we've tried a lot of stuff, you know, lots of stuff. But you know, keep it in context, you know, on average, exercise and activity dropped materially during the lockdown period. Um, that, that's not entirely surprising as lots of sports um, were off limit. Um, you remember going to the gym you know, was the preferred um, mechanism for getting active and doing sports for 10 to 12 million people in the UK in February last year. It's the second most popular form of activity after after walking. So it's absolutely central. So closed gyms, it's not surprising that not all of that gets replaced by people doing um, other things. So w- one of the reasons we um, stress that we think gyms are essential to the health of the nation is so many people use them for preservation of physical and mental well-being. Um, but yes, there's been lots of other things going on. You know, we had invested already in digital and at-home fitness. We obviously increased our investment on that. We made our app, uh, which has over 400 
um, uh, exercise classes and training plans that you can use at home, um, available to all our members for free, and then actually expanded that to being available to anybody for free. Anybody can uh, download the Pure Gym uh, app and use that. Uh, we felt it was important to engage with people at, at these times, and we, we are a mission-driven, a purpose-driven uh, company, and our approach is to make sure that people um, are active and we're doing everything we can to enable that. So yes, there's been lots more uh, home activity and home fitness and other forms of activity and fitness. And we think that's great. We're great believers in fitness and activity in any form or whatever. Um, our job over time is when we get the chance to open is to provide a great experience in gyms and facilities so that people want to to use those um, in time. And, and indeed, that's what they did when we reopened at the back end of last year. We saw you know, really healthy levels of returning members to enable that. But there's been a lot going on, it's certainly true, in the health and fitness space um, in the last year. And obviously we've come into 2021, you know, still in a lockdown. Um, and you've, I assume you've missed out on those, that big January rush, the new year, new me situation. Um, is, that, is that a really big deal for the industry? Is, it, is, it, is that the busiest period? Well, yeah, yeah, yes, it is the busiest period for the industry. And look, I'll, I'll tell you how big a deal it is when we get to re- reopen in um, whenever it is, March or April, um, and we're able to assess um, how people come back at that time. So we won't really know just how big a deal it is then. But it's a big deal by any means anyway. If you're, if you're closed, you're closed. Um, running with zero revenue for a further period of what looks like two or three months at least uh, when balance sheets across the sector are already extremely strained by effectively four or five months of operating without revenue in 2020, uh, you carry that forward into this year. It's an extremely difficult time uh, for the sector. And you know, clearly we're doing everything we can to manage with, within that. But uh, we've already seen high profile failures um, in the industry. I fear that we'll see further failures in the industry as well because you know, the strains being placed on uh, reserves and balance sheets um, are of the nature that will lead to that. And we've received a measure of support for government, but um, yeah, in all honesty, not, not enough support targeted at a sector that's been uh, asked to take more than its fair share of the burden of protecting society, which we completely understand why the government's asked us to do that. Uh, but so far, we've seen relatively little targeted support from government uh, to help uh, the sector through uh, those challenges that result from that uh, period of closure, which by the end of March will be effectively seven months in a 12-month period, uh, zero revenue. I, I must have missed the class at business school when they told you how to run a, a business for over half a year with no opportunity to learn revenue. We've had to learn it as we've been going on. With the lack of support, is there is there a chance that you're going to have to downsize or will there be uh, redundancies at Pure Gym? Well, we've managed to avoid that. Um, uh, we've managed to avoid that to date, uh, John. We've uh, yeah, worked hard to manage our resources. Um, we've uh, secured further investment um, into the business and extended our capital and liquidity lines and reduced the covenants on those. So we've done um, all the things necessary to minimise the probability of any downsizing or redundancy. But yeah, really, across the sector as a whole, it's entirely a question of how long the current closures go on for, on the one hand, and whether the government steps for, forward with some further support on the other. And you know, clearly, we're enormously grateful for the support the government's already given, but um, we've been out there in public for some time saying, let's get into a dialogue uh, in terms of how further support can be targeted right into the businesses and sectors of which we think uh, we are one 
um, that really are deserving of that support um, and investment from government to make sure that we can play our full role in, in helping the country and the economy and our own business reflate and recover um, as the pandemic um, hopefully starts to move into the rearview mirror rather than being straight in front of us. Yeah, and, and looking forward to the rest of the year, um, have you been given an, an indication or any assurances that um, when the country sort of starts opening back up in in March, um, you know, with more, more and more people getting the vaccine, that you're going to be able to now stay open? Well, um, uh, the quick answer is um, no, I haven't been given any assurances beyond what you and others have been able to read in in the press. There's clearly lots of discussions going on. And yes, we're party to a number of discussions about options and possibilities. But I, understandably, and I respect the, them for this, I think the government's sending a cautious note as they stand at the moment. And so we're having to manage in terms of um, the optionality um, that we have to keep open in terms of when reopening might happen under, under what conditions. But the point I would make is a point that we've tried to stress um, all the way through the second half of last year, done huge amounts of work as a sector to make sure that gyms are safe places to work and safe places to work out. And we've been able to gather the evidence and the fact base that provide good support uh, to that, that uh, gyms um, are not um, unsafe places, that the protocols we have in place, the cleaning, the limitations on numbers, the careful management um, of attendance has given us, and I believe actually the government as well, um, a reasonable, indeed I hope a high degree of uh, sort of confidence in the fact that gyms are safe places to work and safe places to work out. And we clearly make a positive addition to people's health and well-being, as well as to the economy as a whole. You know, we're a sector that provided opportunities for employment for you know, 400, 500,000 people directly in, in total, including the many personal trainers who work in facilities. And uh, that, that's an important um, element for the government, but our ability to bring health and well-being, physical and mental, back to people in what has, after all, been a health crisis, first and foremost. Uh, we really stand ready to do that as soon as the government feels it's safe uh, for us to do so. And that's what we're, we're looking forward to having the opportunity to do as soon as we can. And just finally, Humphrey, um, I read you recently offered your sites out as potential vaccination centres. Um, has that offer been taken up? Will we see? Will we be getting vaccines in pure gyms? So we, we have offered out our sites. There are a number of discussions um, ongoing. As ever, there are complexities in these situations. I mean, the offer is a very genuine one. We're, we're very committed to that. Um, a number of discussions are going on um, about specific sites, which is what it always comes down to with uh, third parties who can provide the kind of clinical, actual injection procedures. Uh, I'm still hopeful that a number of pure gym sites will be um, uh, used for that purpose, but uh, it's part of a much larger program, which again, credit to the government, that you have to say that they've um, got off to a flying start on vaccination and to be delivering around 490,000, I think it was, uh, yesterday. I think that's a great level to have reached. We're keen to help the government in any way we can accelerate that further and the offer absolutely remains open as we stand at the moment and as i say there are a couple of good discussions going on and hopefully we'll have some good news on that in the not too distant future so gyms may have suffered but there are other areas of health and fitness which have certainly benefited we've already mentioned halfords but they're certainly not alone in benefiting hugely from uh, from the last few months when people have been buying all their equipment online and not just equipment they're 
their clothes, their shoes, everything they need to uh, when when running and cycling are the only two things that you're allowed to do to stay fit and healthy and, and walking, I suppose. Yeah, uh, a lot of the retailers have done quite well from this, this surge to uh, at-home health and fitness. It's true. I spent a fortune in Sports Direct this year. <laughs> and I have to absolutely fortune. Ordered some trainers at the weekend. Get back into running. Excellent. But, yeah, I mean, it's not just... It's not just the running. Their virtual classes have really taken off as well. The, what, what we're calling the Joe Wicks effect. That everyone is getting involved in online fitness classes. There's a big market out there for selling, selling equipment and selling kit to, uh, to people who are using the online sessions. Mm. Is, it, is this a fashion thing? I mean, I, I don't really know. I tend to go into Sports Direct and buy something that's cheapish to knock around it but there, there is there a fashion side to the whole I gym mean, industry and i fitness? think there is and i think we're gonna hear from the chief executive of gymshark in a moment and i think it's quite hard to deny that gymshark while it's definitely very functional it is a fashion statement and it is it's nice gym kit it's not just your cheap caramel or whatever it is that you uh that you pick up in sports direct which serves a purpose but isn't necessarily the coolest bit of kit but Gymshark's certainly not alone I mean I am um, my mum decided over over Christmas that Fabletics was the uh was the brand of the moment Fabletics is it's owned by a celebrity or it was started by by someone famous an actress I think and it's it's got a subscription model so you sign up you subscribe and then you get massive discounts so she she subscribed for her month and then she bought however much money worth of Christmas presents for me and my three sisters. We all got the same pair of leggings, um, which I've barely taken off since Christmas. They are fantastic leggings. <laughs> but, yeah, it is, it's definitely more of a fashion statement than, than other types of, of sportswear. Phil and I talked about this on an Alpha Pod once when we were talking about cycling uh, and, and the snobbery that comes with it. I think it's there. I think there are brands that you want, if you want to be seen as a serious sports person, cyclist, gym goer, then you've got to wear the right stuff. Yeah, but then I find it extraordinary. How how do these companies, the hundreds of little companies which have popped up in the last few years selling fashionable sports kit, how do they differentiate themselves? I noticed I went, I walked through um, one new change earlier, a relatively large shopping centre in central London, and there seemed, there's a store there which seems to be quite new selling sports kit i mean sports kit that looks quite similar to gymshark and fabletics and and even nike how how do people pick if it's not based on cost i i I guess it's the the brand cachet i mean this you know gets back to the cover feature last week the emotion of investing Mm. you know people people form emotional bonds with companies that, that, that they feel represent their values. Uh, so, you know, if you, if you found a, brand, a gym brand that, that you think says something about you, that's what you're going to wear. A friend of mine has actually, uh, a few years ago, set up a mixed martial arts fashion brand. It's called Battles of London. Uh, it's very good stuff, but it's also very expensive. Mm. Maybe one person who can tell us how to take a sportswear retailer from a, from a bedroom project to a billion-pound company in, in just eight years is... Steve Hewitt, who's the chief executive of Gymshark. 
I saw earlier in the year, I read an article saying Gymshark had become a £1 billion company, which is a pretty extraordinary uh, figure. So I wondered if you could just talk us through a brief history of the, of the brand and yeah, how you've got to where you've got. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a uh, very humbling moment becoming a, a unicorn uh, brand. Um, yeah, the, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure many people have read in the media. Gymshark uh, was founded back in 2012 by... Uh, ben Francis and a bunch of his high school friends. Um, they, you know, basically created products that they wanted to wear, and and basically at the time the big sports brands didn't cater for. So um, as I, as I said, they sort of effectively created uh, the product themselves. Um, we've been through one hell of a journey. Um, uh, I'm big into analogies. If Gymshark was a was a book. Uh, we're probably uh, moving into sort of chapter three. So chapter one, when Ben um, uh, and the guys first sort of started off sort of between 12 and 2015, it was what I'd call sort of the entrepreneurial years, you know, pioneered um, certainly fitness within the social uh, media platform space. And, uh, and as I said, they, they, the guys really led that. Um, I guess back then the guys didn't know what they didn't know either. Um, you know, average age, I think, uh, within the business at that point was 19 and a half years old. Um, but, you know, exceptionally brave and, and really knew how to engage with a, a community uh, because they were the consumer uh, at the time. Um, so we've sort of gone from that sort of entrepreneurial phase. Chapter two was was really we needed a little bit of a lesson um, um, and we learned a big lesson uh, in Black Friday 2015 when when really the business didn't have a sort of a, a plan B and I remember Black Friday back then we had so many uh, people coming onto the site and effectively all of our systems imploded and we we gave our customer base at that point just a just a, um, a, a terrible experience, you know, unacceptable probably was the word that we probably would have used at the time. Um, and we sort of looked at each other, uh, Ben, myself, uh, Paul Richardson also at the time, uh, and we sort of said, you know, what do we really want this brand to be and what do we want this brand to stand for? And we talked about really building a legacy and we sort of said at that point, well, that's great, but then we need to bring in people who are better than better than we are, right? And and that's what we, we sort of really did back in um, end of 15, 2016. So the sort of the second chapter in the book has all been about professionalizing the business. So, you know, if, if that chapter had a title, it would read something like building the foundations, all about people, uh, people build brands. Um, and then really now chapter three, we're, we're, we're heading into chapter three, um, which is really about going global. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're doing well. We, we've now got over 3 million active customers in over 150 countries. We employ nearly up to 600 staff in, in five offices across four continents with our latest um, office uh, opening being in Denver, Colorado. U.S. is a really important market for us. Um, and yet it's going well. We grew, we grew um, you know, 2020 um, from 2019 by about 50% this year. We're currently in around about 70% growth year and year. So, um, yes, super happy with the, um, the journey. It's been, it's been a roller coaster at times, um, but we actually believe we're just getting started. So when people talk about us being this unicorn, $1.5 billion status brand, it's like, yeah, yeah, we, we've done well. Uh, as I said, we're very humbled by that, but we're literally just at the start of the journey. And I guess a, a, a few paragraphs of chapter three will be dedicated to 2020 and uh, operating through a global pandemic. Um, of course, you're, you're mainly online, aren't you? So um, 
that's uh, insulated you from that somewhat. But I just wondered if if you had, uh, yeah, how your experience was operating through a pandemic. Yeah, uh, initially frightening. Um, I remember one of the guys in, in the senior leadership team, uh, three days after the uh, initial uh, lockdown, one March 23rd last year, I'll never forget the date. And he said, I've always wanted to be a CEO. And he said, three days into this pandemic, he said, I don't actually fancy doing that job anymore. So um, it was, you know, it was um, unique, unique position to be in for, you know, all businesses right across the world. Um, We sort of um, effectively ran our own set of sort of Cobra meetings uh, back then. And we sort of very quickly as a leadership team set out three objectives and three objectives only back then. First one, and most importantly, we sort of set out to look after our people. We didn't want to worry. There was a lot of, you know, obviously a lot of anxiety back then, you know, were people going to keep their jobs? What impact was this pandemic going to have? So we sort of said to ourselves as a leadership team, we, we must look after our people. That's first and foremost, as I said, people build brands. Two is then looking after our customers and our community. So we've got a, a very highly engaged community, sort of called it almost a fan base. And we sort of said, we actually also want to be remembered for the right reasons with, with that group of um, um, uh, cohorts also. And then obviously the, the maths have to work, right? So the, the, the third bit was all around making sure that we protected our, our cash flow runway. So, um, you know, making sure that we had enough inbound sales, making sure that we were um, managing costs appropriately, but not at the detriment of our people and not at the detriment of our community. So we really sort of set that out. Um, and again, being, um, uh, you know, leaving a, leg- a legacy, we talked about w- how we act as a brand through this pandemic will we'll get us remembered for decades, uh, whether we do that right or whether we do that badly. And we sort of said, we're not doing it badly. Um, so we did a bunch of stuff. Um, you know, uh, the, the first and foremost, we, we wanted to get a message out there to everybody um, who followed the brand to, to act, responsibly, uh, act responsibly. So we changed our... Um, uh, Instagram handle from Gymshark to Homeshark, um, and I think even now it's our it's our best ever in our highly most highly engaged post of all time. Um, you know, it took us seconds at no cost to do that, um, but it meant that we were sort of being responsible and, and sending out the right message. Um, you know, really super proud that we supported uh, PTs uh, across the world by actually paying them to do online fitness sessions in the same way that you see actually Joe Wicks doing it now, who's who's also uh, been, um, you know, uh, tremendously inspiring through the pandemic. Um, we launched um, the NHS Sweaty Selfie campaign, where, again, we got behind um, what, was, what has been an incredibly tough time for frontline workers. Um, we raised uh, almost £250,000 through that, you know, getting people to sort of stay fit through the lockdown. Um, and probably from a financial perspective, um, and this is sort of my moral compass, um, we didn't furlough anyone. Um, we're on online brand, as you say. You know, um, uh, you know, you, you can only buy Gymshark from the 15 e-com stores that we uh, we run, depending on the GOIP uh, in, in terms of where you sit. Um, but we've also got a, a fairly decent size, um, uh, what we call IRL team in real in real life team. So the people who uh, manage all of our big community events and um, you know it was a case of well, what do, what do those members of staff do? So we actually set up with the NHS and we did some volunteering with the, the local pharmacies to get drugs out to, to people who couldn't travel in because of the pandemic. But we also made sure that because we were actually a business who 
potentially win uh, yeah win a little bit through the pandemic from a from a sales perspective we want to make sure that we didn't take advantage of any government you know um, process that we didn't really need so we decided not to furlough anyone um, and then from a, an agility point of view we we established categories on the website that had never existed before. So home workout suddenly became a category on our, on our site, home comfort, you know, uh, rest days, we would call it became a category. So it was really just trying to change our view in, in making sure that people stayed physically and mentally fit. So, yeah, so it's been a, a again, we talk about a roller coaster. Uh, it's been an interesting, uh, you know, 10 going into 11 months now. Um, I think the brands that are doing well are the ones who have been able to really resonate and really care about their community. Um, and the ones, as I said, who really care about their own people too. So, Yeah. And you, you mentioned you've done uh, well during the pandemic. And I, I wondered if you could maybe touch on the new trends um, health and fitness have seen. I mean, obviously people staying at home, um, people running a lot more, potentially walking a lot more. Um, at home yoga, that kind of thing. So, where have you seen, um, where have you seen that sales growth? I guess. Yeah, uh, great question. Again, for us, I think trends, uh, not just the Gymshark, but I think across, call it the health and fitness industry, whether you're in the gym market or whether you're in the apparel market, like we are. I think there's three things that we sort of see uh, and, and have changed quite a lot, but definitely will will shape the future. One is community. As I said, if you can really build a highly engaged community when your brand really stands for something, uh, you're in a great place. Um, you know, you definitely saw through the pandemic marketing dollars just not actually having much impact at all. It was all about, you know, uh, as I said, do you have a really strong relationship with that community? Uh, two, um, being digitally, uh, you know, ready, I guess. And you look at uh, brands such as Peloton, I think their, their, their uh, downloads were fivefold from the year prior um, through the pandemic. Interesting enough, actually, people talk about, well, people can't work out because they can't get to the gyms. 50% um, of the, uh, the UK and US population um, actually train from home or do some sort of outdoor activity anyway. That was even prior lockdown. I think you've just sort of seen that exaggerated through lockdown. So for us, it was about sending out the message to our community that, you actually don't necessarily need to go and get into the gym that's closed. There's nothing stopping you from doing a, a, a relatively creative um, home workout using our conditioning app, uh, which is free of charge. Or as you said, getting out for a walk with the dog. You know, we, one of the messages that we sent to our, uh, all of our 600 members of staff was make sure that you take the time at lunchtime to go for that 20, 30 minute walk. Don't take your phone with you, completely switch off. You know, make sure you get out early um, uh, on a dog walk in the morning and, and uh, you know, take in some fresh air. And I was reading a great article about how the, um, how the Danish and, and, and effectively the wider Scandinavian community get through their winters because generally they have cold, dark winters, even in comparison to us. And, and their secret has always, is, is always been about getting outdoors uh, and starting to sort of um, think about life in that way. Um, and I think the third trend that you're now sort of seeing um, in the health and fitness industries is the, the brands who can pivot really quickly with a lot of agility and a lot of creativity, although again, the ones that are winning. So, um, so yeah, I think, you know, if I look at the, the actual gym market, um, I think 
the pandemic is definitely getting them to think in a different way. I also think it, it opens up a huge opportunity for those um, brands. As I said, I've, I've mentioned Peloton there uh, as an example. Um, but I think, I think what brands have got to do within our uh, industries, they've got to find a way of um, almost thinking about how they can meet the consumer's fitness needs anytime, but just as importantly, anywhere, right? And I think what you're going to find in the gym market is you're probably going to see more of a hybrid model come through where rather than just think you've got to go to a venue to work out, actually, you can go to that venue today, but actually tomorrow I'm going to do more of a, a, um, an online workout and just mixing that up a little bit. And, and uh, you know, I think that gives the consumer a lot more flexibility in doing that way. And just finally, Steve, uh, I wondered as, as, a, as a big business and as a, uh, still a growing business, um, I'm sure our uh, investment-minded listeners would like to know if you've had any thoughts becoming publicly listed uh, in the future. Uh, yeah, it's a question we get a lot, um, if I'm being honest. Um, yeah, being candid, you know, if we go back to the... Um, the events, as we would call it, with General Atlantic and bringing their, those guys in as, a, as an investor. When we, we brought GA in, the, the thing that was most important to us was, do they really understand our culture? Do they really understand how we're built? And what we're trying to build is this, um, as Ben would sort of explain, is a sort of a hundred year legacy brand, right? We're not building this for five minutes to, to um, you know, drive a sales number as hard as we can and then, and then exit. That's just not what we're trying to achieve here. We're trying to really leave a legacy um, that um, people understand in, you know, as I said, in a in hundred years from now. Um, so great question right now, being perfectly candid, we are focused on our, what we would deem as our North Star internally, which is uh, driven um, in uniting the condition community. So really focusing on what we're doing well, improving what we're still not doing so well, um, and you know, just focused on that, you know, that next chapter in the book. So we get asked that question a lot. It's not really on the radar at the moment. Thanks very much to both of our guests today. It's a really interesting insight. We're introducing a new section of the podcast to bring it back to really what the Investors Chronicle is all about, which is obviously investment. And we have set up a mailbag. Thank you very much to everyone who's given us questions via all sorts of different channels so far but the purpose of this is for you to yeah send in send in your email send in your question about anything anything you like and we will attempt to answer it at the end of the podcast the the email address is icpodcast at ft.com you can also reach us on twitter and on facebook and on instagram and even linkedin whichever social media channel you you choose um, but today we're going to kick off with a question from Rebecca in North London because it's very topical considering what we are dis- have been discussing today. And she has asked, is it worth having giant corporations like Nike and Adidas in my portfolio? I mean, I'm not sure the question in itself is, is the right question to be asking. Uh, it's worth having good companies in your portfolio. Therefore, the question to ask is, are Nike and Adidas good companies? Are they going to grow? Uh, do they have some kind of moat which protects them from competition? Um, so, yeah, it's really about the quality of the companies. My understanding is that both Nike and Adidas are very good companies. They are. They're very high-quality companies. And um, both, obviously, didn't have particularly great years last year. Um, challenges it for, for massive companies operating across borders when 
um, a lot of supply chains were disrupted and they did both struggle, Adidas in particular, and Nike's share price fell a very, very long way right at the start of the pandemic, which was why Terry Smith decided to add it to his portfolio. He obviously thinks that despite the short-term disruptions, Nike has a long-term long-term future I do think that the question is worth asking in that particular way in light of the conversation we've just had about competitors I think Nike and Adidas have thrived for so long because they have they're very reputable companies um, people like what they do and people like the fact that they have their brands are so so valuable but are their brands so valuable in light of all of the new brands, which are also have the same kind of um, green responsibilities and ethical criteria as Nike and Adidas do. I'm not so sure. And Nike has run into some pretty serious issues in the last few years. I mean, kind of, <laughs> we could take it all the way back to Lance Armstrong and his relatively major drug scandal. And last year we had Alberto Salazar and the super duper trainers that um, Elliot Kipchoge used to run his sub two hour marathon. It doesn't reflect brilliantly on Nike's brand. And when so much of its value is tied up into that brand, that's that's not ideal when companies like Under Armour are, are really nipping at its heels. And, and uh, the Japanese company Uniqlo, we've we've seen Red, Roger Federer ditch Nike in favour of Uniqlo in the last few years, one of the world's most loved sports people and most expensive sports people. That's not that's not a great reflection on Nike, the fact that, that Roger Federer was, was willing to drop the brand that had, had supported him for so long in favour of a company which, yes, it, they paid more for him. But if they're going to be losing sports stars to up-and-coming brands, that's, uh, that's not great. I mean, I think for now, I've very much played devil's advocate to your answer, but for now, I really like Nike and Adidas. I think they're both fantastic companies. But I definitely think it's worth being wary of the competition. Yeah, I I, uh, I would expect nothing less of you uh, than to play devil's advocate <laughs> <laughs> with, uh, with, with the question. I mean, you can look across to the food industry and someone like Unilever, uh, as, as a comparison for, for the relationship that, that Nike perhaps has with, with smaller competitors, you know, craft produce is, is huge. And, you know, loads of people love to go out and, and, and spend you know, more money than they really have to on, on sort of niche food products. But Unilever still has an enormous market, a massive role uh, in that market. And it's still the, go, you know, the, the strong go-to brands that many people love. So it's the same sort of dynamic. Nike is a machine. I, so would, I would argue that it's not quite the same dynamic because Unilever's value is not tied to one brand. And Nike and Adidas, really, I mean, they both have a handful of smaller brands, although Adidas is uh, is wanting to sell one of one of its brands because it's really not doing very well. Um, Reebok. And, yeah, so really the inherent value of both of those companies it, is tied to a single brand. And if there is any anything negative, any any anything bad that goes on, which is, I think, why Nike closed down its, um, its training centre, as, as quickly as it, get, it did in the in the wake of the Alberta Salazar scandal, because having a having a training center which was promoting the use of drugs in elite sport right in its company headquarters wasn't great for its image, and I think that is where it differs slightly to the the giants of the food industry where there are hundreds of brands, and and if I mean we've seen it extensively with both Nike and Nestle, if a brand isn't doing particularly well, they sell it 
and they buy something else. So there's much more movement going on in companies like that than there is in, in the Nike and Adidas story. That's true, but then, then the big sports brands tend to sort of dip in and out of sports as well. So, you know, Nike would have, you know, a few years ago made a huge push into golf through mm-hmm. Tiger Woods. Um, didn't work out too well for the brand image, <laughs> that no, one no, either. No, it didn't, but, but it hasn't really damaged Nike. Um, and even if, you know, a, a foray into a particular sport doesn't work out so well, they've got so many other sports. Yeah, that no, that's true. Well. So, so there is, a, you know, I'll, I'll come back at you on that one uh, and, and, and argue that they're, 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 that similarity does, does hold true. But, but they are good companies. Uh, they are very strong companies. They have great products. People love the brands. They seem to be able to shake off any controversy that does come at them. I mean, you know, the controversy around like production facilities that, that was, was big years ago didn't really seem to do them a lot of harm in the long term. Well, yeah, I, I do agree. I think they're both great companies, but, but worth being wary of the competition. But yeah, great question. Good, good discussion. I'm pretty sure I won. And if you have any other <laughs> questions, do get in touch. As I said, icpodcast at ft.com or get in touch on any of the social media channels that you use. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Not Your Normal Finance Show and join us next week for, for the big one, the big topic that everyone's discussing right now, Bitcoin. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.